John chapter 18, page 1072, if you're using a pew Bible. We're working our way through the gospel of John, and we've entered the, the holy ground of the Passion Week of Christ and the Passion of Christ. And today in John, we're reading the story of just hours before his crucifixion when he went on trial before Pontius Pilate. And here in John chapter 18, uh, I, I think we have one of the maybe most dramatic stories, if not the most dramatic stories, within all of John's gospel. I, I mean, this story is gripping. It's, a, you know, it's like a TV show where you start watching it and 10 minutes later you are sucked in. I, I feel like this story sucks you in. Uh, the, the, the drama between the characters, the movement, uh, the, the complexity, it, it has it all, and, and it's about our Lord and hours before his crucifixion. So there's a, a weightiness and a sanctity to it that, that I just find this story so compelling. As, as I was studying it this week, it, it just kept overwhelming me. And um, the, the story plays out in what I'm going to call seven scenes. There's seven scenes. And the scenes are created because, as we'll see, the uh, Jewish authorities bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate for judgment, but because they don't want to defile themselves on the Passover by going into the house of a Gentile, they, they stay outside, but Jesus is inside. So you have Pilate constantly transitioning between the, uh, the Jewish authorities outside and then talking to Jesus on the inside. So it creates a nice kind of dramatic tension and, and movement within the story itself as he goes back and forth between these scenes. So the, the odd-numbered scenes, 1, 3, 5, and 7, Pilate is outside speaking to the high priests. And the even-numbered scenes, 2, 4, and 6, he's always on the inside, either interacting with Jesus or speaking to Jesus or, or something like that. And um, in these th- scenes, there are themes, themes in the scenes. That, and, and there are themes that, that just kind of keep popping up in these different scenes. And I just want to kind of highlight them to you. And then I, I thought the best way to preach this is just go through the story. I mean, the story itself carries you along. And so let's just kind of follow the story. But as we do, let's look for four themes. Uh, a first theme to look for is irony. This story is dripping with irony. It just it, almost in every scene, there's something ironic that takes place that makes you go, "Are you kidding me?" It, it, it's that kind of a story. A second theme that we see here is we're going to see conflict between kingdoms. All right, Th- this is very much a power struggle story. You're going to have Pilate versus the Jewish high priests. So there's an earthly politicking that's going on throughout the story as they're vying for their will to be done. But then there's also kind of a, a vertical power struggle between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. But that one's a little bit different. It's going to play out differently. So, so like I said, this is a great story. There's all this drama between these political and power forces that are poised and operating against one another. So there's irony. There's conflict. Another thing that we're going to see is Pilate. I think Pilate is a fascinating character here. He, even though we have different scenes, the camera is always on Pilate. He's the guy we're following, transitioning back and forth from one side to the other. And, and Pilate not only moves, but his character moves throughout the story. So he has a character arc. And where he begins the story is not where he ends the story. I find it very interesting to see where he ends and where we end as we follow him. 
So there's irony, there's conflict, there's character development. And then the last thing, and of course this is true anytime you read the Gospels, there's a portrayal of Jesus Christ. In all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have one primary goal, which is to show us Jesus. And so when you're reading the Gospels, any Gospel, a question you always need to be asking is, what do I learn about Jesus in this Gospel? And there's things that we're going to learn about Christ here as, as John shows us this particular angle and as Jesus goes through this trial before Pilate. So let's look at the story, and we'll start with the first two scenes. If I could kind of lump those together the scene one and scene two, and we'll call this the, the trial of Jesus. This is where Jesus is accused and questioned by Pilate. So let me just read verse one, or rather uh, the first verse, chapter 18, verse 28, verse 28. Scene one, the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas, that's the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor, By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. You know, oh, the irony. (laughs) That they don't want to be unclean by going into the house of the Gentile. Killing an innocent man, no problem. But ceremonial uncleanness, oh, we're not going to do that. You know, so already, you know, the the irony, and, and that irony is going to be there with Pilate. There's so much duplicity and, and ugliness in this story. So Pilate comes out and asks him, verse 29, what charges are you bringing against this man? Verse 30, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Can you tell these two groups don't really get along? There is no love lost between Pilate and, and the leaders of the Jewish people, which actually matches what we know from history. Uh, Pilate is a figure that we know about from ancient history as well as from the scriptures. And uh, just maybe we could kind of put the story on pause for a minute, tell you a little bit about Pontius Pilate. He was a Roman governor of Judea from 26 AD till about 36, 37 AD. And uh, he, he was like a lot of the governors of Roman provinces, had been a military man among the, what was known as the equestrian class. And uh, he had been appointed governor of a, an unruly province. And uh, the thing about uh, being a governor of a province like Judea is you really had one job, keep things under control. <laughs> and as long as it was peaceful there, Rome was happy, right? And, and so Pontius Pilate, he had extra troops at his disposal. He had a, uh, a contingent, they estimated about 5,000 soldiers because Judah was a place with lots of turmoil and upheaval because you had the Jewish people and they were this weird little group within all the Romans who didn't worship Caesar, they didn't worship all the Roman gods. They were just kind of a strange group. And they had permission by Rome not to worship the Roman gods and to worship Caesar. But, but they were always kind of fomenting and revolting. And there's always little brush fires. And so Pilate had to be there to tamp out the brush fires whenever they popped up. And he had no compunction about using force. He was a very kind of savage ruler when he had to be. So needless to say, the Jewish people did not like Pilate. And Pilate did not like the Jewish people. <laughs> they did not get along with each other, and for, for good reasons, because of the way Pilate was. Uh, a, a biblical stol- scholar, uh, Don Carson, in his commentary on John, had this to say about Pontius Pilate. I, I thought this was a really good summary. He said, both biblical and extra-biblical sources have come to know Pilate as a morally weak and vacillating man who, like many of the same breed, tried to hide his flaws under shows of stubbornness 
and brutality. His rule earned him the loathing of the Jewish people, small groups of whom violently protested and were put down with savage ferocity. That's Pilate. Can you feel that in the story? You know, that that historical picture we have of Pilate just totally rings true with this story. Because they're, they're the Jewish uh, leaders bringing Jesus. They've, they've tried Jesus in their Jewish court, but now they're bringing him to Pilate. And they're saying, here's the man. And, and he says, well, what are the charges? Which is a little bit disingenuous because he knew all this was coming. His own soldiers had been dispatched to help arrest Jesus. So he's playing games a little bit. And so they say, well, I mean, if he hadn't done anything wrong, we wouldn't be here. And so you know, he's like, well, judge him by your own laws. You got laws. You, you take care of this. But, verse 31, we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected, which was true. Uh, the, the power of life and death rested with the governor. He was in absolute authority over that province. He could demand the, or bring the execution about of anyone in the province. But it's almost like, I feel like in verse 31, it's like Pilate is just kind of baiting them to admit that they're not in control. You know, he's, he's just, it's all these games, right? Well, you go judge him. Well, we can't because we don't have the power of life and death. That's right, you don't. I do. It's kind of that attitude. I'm the governor and you're not. And let's remember who's who. And and all of this kind of posturing. It's like, man, politics really haven't changed, have they? (laughs) This is what we hate about politics. This is what gives politics a bad name. I mean, politics really isn't bad. Politics is just governance, the rule of law. It's actually a neutral thing, but we, we've turned it into something bad because of our sin. And so rather than, than these, these Jewish authorities and Pilate just getting up in the morning saying, we've got to do the right thing today, what's the right way to serve the people? Instead, it, it just becomes this sort of chest-thumping match, you know, where they're, they're trying to manipulate Pilate to get what they want, and Pilate's making sure that they know who's really in charge, and well, you know, and he's insulting them, and they're manipulating him. It's just ugly. It's ugly. I know a lot of us get discouraged when we we see how politics like this take place in the world. But there's one encouraging little word here. It's at the end of the scene one, verse 32. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. So that even as there's this ugly, corrupt, selfish kind of political tug of war going on, there is God somehow superintending the whole thing to bring about his outcomes. So even as these wicked people are behaving wickedly and selfishly, God is somewhere above it all guiding even their choices to bring about not only the death of Christ for his purposes, but even the way he's going to die, which is on a cross. You know, God is so in charge. He's fulfilling promises, as we're going to see next Sunday. He's fulfilling prophecies about even the fact that the Messiah must die on a tree because cursed is anyone who's hung on the tree. You know, all of those prophecies from the Old Testament are coming true. And so God is even using this turn of events to bring about very detailed fulfillments of his will. And, you know, it's just so encouraging that to hear that when, when you're getting frustrated with how the world works and how politics works. Whether it's the governments or whether it's office politics or school classroom politics or unfair teachers or unfair 
politics in the family, you feel like you're not being treated rightly. You know, we, we can just get so discouraged and feel like the people in charge are just bad at what they're doing, and they're not treating us right. And it, becomes, it can be so discouraging, and, and our temptation is to jump into the politics and play the games too, and, and try to just become like them, and to know that God is in control, and that he has a purpose and a plan he's working out. And, and even as we, we get involved in life, we realize that God is not stopped by anything, and his plans succeed. And so it's comforting, even here in this ugly, horrible, dark moment, the plan of God is unfolding. And so now Pilate has the charges. The formal charge has been leveled. He's the judge. A third party has brought a charge to him. So he now goes inside, scene two, and he's going to talk to Jesus. He now has to investigate the charges brought to him. And so scene two begins there in verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And that's the formal charge. So this is where the formal charge in John's gospel enters the story. The, the, the Jewish high priest and his group have accused Jesus of claiming to be the king of the Jews. And you can see the logic. The logic is this guy claims to be a rival king to Rome, therefore he must die. That's why you should kill him because he's a political threat to Rome by claiming to be a rival king. So Pilate goes right at Jesus. So... You're the king of the Jews, and Jesus is so coy. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? What are we talking about here? Are you interested in learning about me? Do you want to talk, or is this just a game? What, what, what do you really want to know about me? And so Pilate's Bluff is called, his disdain and his arrogance come out. Verse 35, am I a Jew? You could tell how he feels toward the Jewish people. Pilate replied, it was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Like, look, I, I don't care. I don't know. I'm not a Jewish person. I'm not caught up in your silly little religious squabbles. Just tell me, why are you here? What'd you do? Let's deal with it. Why are you standing here in front of me, Jesus? And so Jesus answers, and in verses 36 to 38, he actually does admit that he is a king in in so many words. But here's the thing. It's a very different kind of kingship. It's a very different kind of kingdom. And, And so again, one of the things we see in this story is the answer to the question, who is Jesus? And here's one of those moments where Jesus is going to tell us who he is. Yes, he's a king, but it's not the kind of king that the high priests are accusing him of claiming to be, nor is it the kind of king that Pilate is used to to dealing with. This is a different kind of kingdom. And so here's what Jesus says, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying that I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. This is a different kind of king. It's a different kind of kingdom. Three things I notice about what Jesus' kingdom is like. Number one, it's not of this world. 
Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdom of Judea. It's not like Rome. It's not like Gaul. It's not like Brazil. It's not like the Philippines. It's not like India or the United States of America. It's not a geopolitical piece of ground that's staked out somewhere that's vying for resources and supremacy against other geopolitical sovereign states. It's not that kind of kingdom. Jesus says it's not even of this world. You, you can't go someplace and say, oh, I just crossed the line from Rome into the kingdom of God. It's not like that. It's not of this world. It's a different, it's from another place. It's a different kind of kingdom. And as a result, second observation, that God's kingdom is not advanced through violence. It's not that kind of a kingdom. He says, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. By the Jews. You know, if, if I was just another king of another kingdom like you think you are, well, then I wouldn't be standing here so calmly. My guys would be with their swords, and, and you'd be with your swords, and we'd be seeing who's the real king. Um, it, you know, it reminds me in the garden story last week. Remember we studied that? And here comes Peter. You can't take him, and Peter's swinging his sword around, and Jesus says, put that thing down. You know, the, the kingdoms of this world defend themselves and they use armies and they use force because they have to protect their citizens and they fight for their rights and, and for sovereignty. But this is a, it's a totally different kingdom from a different place. And it reminds us that God's kingdom is not advanced through earthly power. It's not advanced by swords and weapons. God's kingdom is not advanced, advanced by political power. You know, sometimes I, I, I get concerned that we think that, like, we could bring God's kingdom if we could just elect the right people. <laughs> and they could just make sure that the right Supreme Court justices are in place. And they could pass the right laws. And if we could get the right people with the right laws and the right justices, then we could sort of enter a kind of kingdom of God here in America again. And, uh, you know, it's like, well... Yeah, I, I have political views just like you do, I'm sure. And, and I do think, boy, I wish the people who held my views were in office. And I tend to think that if they voted the way I wish they would vote, the world would be a better place. I mean, don't we all think that? So, so it's not that politics are bad or, or that trying to, to bring about a certain political vision for the good of society is, is bad. But my point is, don't confuse that with the kingdom of God. If the right people voting better laws make our country a little better, that's not God's kingdom coming. That's just America being better or worse. Because God's kingdom is not of this world. You, you can't bring it through force or political action. In fact, I don't think you can bring it at all. Do you ever hear Christians talk this way? This is a, a phrase I hear Christians use. I think I've used this phrase. But Christians say things like, we need to build God's kingdom. We need to advance God's kingdom. We've got to grow the kingdom of God. We need to, to, to strengthen God's kingdom and spread God's kingdom. People, that language is not in the Bible. We don't build God's kingdom. How am I going to build God's kingdom anyway? Do I take a brick, put mortar, and did I build the kingdom? Is that it? When we built this building, do we build the kingdom? When you walk through the doors, are you in the kingdom? Do, do, I, do I arm myself and take over my neighbor's house and declare it the kingdom of God? And like, well, you know, What's the kingdom? How do you build the kingdom? The Bible never calls us to build the kingdom, grow the kingdom, expand the kingdom, uh, or anything like that. There's one thing we're supposed to do with the kingdom. Enter the kingdom. We enter it 
And we enter it through faith in Jesus. Because here's the thing. You can't be in the kingdom of God and you can't have the kingdom of God unless you have the king. And if you don't have Jesus, you're outside of the kingdom. But if you have Jesus, you're inside of the kingdom. The, the kingdom is something you enter or, or leave depending upon your relationship with Jesus Christ and the message that he proclaims. Now, do those people who are in the kingdom, who have a relationship with Jesus, operate differently in this world? Of course we do, or we should. And, and it, it should make a difference in the world, the way we live. But the kingdom of God is something else. Our job is to enter the kingdom. Your job this morning is to believe in Christ and enter the kingdom of God. And our other job then is to proclaim the kingdom. And isn't that what Jesus says? I mean, look back at the story. Here's the third thing about his kingdom. It's not of this world. It's not a violent kingdom. And so he says in verse 37, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born or for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus says, look, my job as king is I'm here to tell you the truth. And he is the truth. He is the king. He is the savior. He's telling us about himself. That's the whole point of the gospel of John to show us who Jesus is. And and then it's kind of like in this moment here, Jesus is inviting Pilate to, to learn about the truth. Like, Pilate, I'm, there's truth here. Anyone who wants the truth listens to me. It's like, listen to Jesus. The truth is right there. Some of you know, some of you may be aware, one of my uh, pastimes, one of the things I do for recreation is I love playing board games. When I say board games, I'm not talking games like Monopoly or Shoots and Ladders or Cranium. I don't actually consider those board games. That's, those are just kind of silly. I mean like the real deal, like five hours sustained by, you know, Coke, um, it, the soda. Um, <laughs> that came out wrong. Um, and, you know, this five-hour game with, like, you know, people trying to, you know, use their armies and their resources to conquer the galaxy or the world, and it's all about global, denomina- uh, global domination and just taking over things. I love those games. And, uh, you know, the longer and the more complex, the better. Uh, but the other thing I love about board games like that is I love the relationships and the interactions with the people around the board game. Like, you just learn so much about people when you play together. And you, you get to know people. Things come out after, five, after hour five when you're all jacked up on Pepsi products. Um, <laughs> and you're, you know, you just learn. And you, you get this relationship going. It's a lot of fun. And I have to say that over the years, I, I've always played board games, I guess, since I was a teenager. But over the years, my, my, my appreciation has grown for the, the social aspect. I've almost reached a point where I really don't care if I lose. Almost. <laughs> but but I, love, I love the interaction. That's what I really love now. It's just hanging out with people, talking, laughing, getting to know each other. And it's almost like I, I feel like there's this board game going on in this story where Pilate's making his maneuvers to advance his little kingdom and the chief priests are advancing theirs and Jesus is a pawn and they're all trying to outposition each other. And here's Jesus at the board game table saying, Pilate, let's just talk. It's like Jesus has transcended the game and he's above it. And he's saying to Pilate, I, I'm actually here for truth. I can tell you truth. Do you want to know the truth? I mean, think about this. Pilate had 
a, a captive audience with Jesus who wanted to talk to him. Wouldn't you love 20 minutes face-to-face with Jesus? He could have held him there for a week. Pilate had Jesus right there. And Jesus is open to him. Jesus is, is like Jesus is saying, hey, you want to know truth? Talk to me. Listen to me. Let's talk. And in that golden moment, Pilate goes right back to the board game. And he says, verse 38, what is truth? Pilate asked. Truth? What's that? Don't joke with me. It's like, Pilate, Jesus is truth. He is the truth and the way and the life. Do you want truth? He's standing next to you. Oh, the irony that Pilate is there to, as the governor, investigate truth claims to find out the truth. And here's Jesus who is true and faithful and is the truth standing right there. And here of Pilate, who's supposed to be investigating truth, saying, eh, what is truth? You know, the irony is just so thick in this story. So Jesus, he offers it to us. He, he stands there and says, what is truth? He offers himself as the truth. And so often, you know, we have the Bible right here. We have the truth of God's word. We can learn about Jesus. And we're like, yeah, what's truth? Yeah, the Bible. Yeah, this guy interprets it this way. This guy interprets it that way. I'm not even going to read it. There's so many contradictions in the Bible. Which ones? Well, I don't know. I haven't read it. But it's just such a, you know, uh, what, whatever. Whatever. What is truth? I don't get involved in spiritual things. And it's right there. And you can see Christ in the scriptures and know him for yourself and get out of the game and, and leave all the little politicking and gaming we dump our lives into and miss the relationship that's right in front of us. So, scene one, scene two, the trial of Jesus. Charges leveled. You're the king of the Jews, and Jesus says, I am, but it's not like anything you've ever heard of. It's something totally different. And it's a challenge for us to to embrace him as Savior, to know the truth about him. But let's move on then. What does Pilate then do with that? We're going to look now at scenes three through five. We'll kind of group those together. And in scenes three through five, uh, I'd like to entitle these the bargaining of Jesus or the bargaining with Jesus. So we have the trial of Jesus, and now there's the bargaining of Jesus with Jesus. And so Pilate comes out in verse 38. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis of charge against him. So scene three opens with Pilate now going back outside. And he says, look, I've investigated it. No charge. Nothing. And he's a little weird. I'll grant you that. Talking truth and stuff. Not from this world. Okay, whatever. But he's not a threat to Rome. This is not a guy who should be put to death. There's no basis for a charge that brings capital punishment because he's a threat to Rome. It's not that kind of a guy. He said, he said his followers will not fight for him. I mean, it's case closed. Now, what should happen at this point? If this story were being written the right way, how should it end? Pilate should get his gavel or whatever he used, and he should slam it down and say, I rule Jesus is innocent, case closed, case dismissed. You may go free. That would be the right thing. If Pilate was a man of truth, if he was a man of justice, if he was a man who feared God, or even just did what was right, that's what he would do. He would let 
Jesus go free. But that's not what Pilate does because Pilate is a weasel. He's a coward. All right? He's, he's a really slimy guy. So he wants to let Jesus go free, but he doesn't want to cowboy up and do the right thing and say, all right, we're going to let him go free, and that's the right thing, and I don't care what any of you think. It's right. He's not just going to do the right thing. He wants to try to, he's a manipulator, so what he wants to do is try to position this so that Jesus can go free, but he doesn't have to expend political capital being the one letting him go free. Instead, what he wants to do is have the, the Jewish leaders say it's okay for Jesus to go free. So he tries to do a few tricks. There's two tricks here as Pilate tries to manipulate the situation. Trick number one is right there in scene three. He he tries to to get the Jews to let him go based upon this tradition they have. Look at verse 39. "It It is your custom, Pilate says, for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Must have been some tradition. I always get, you guys can give someone a get out of jail free card at the Passover. So would you like me to release the king of the Jews? And so it's kind of, I think Pilate's trying to appeal to their better side. Like, look, guys, you got him. He's here. I don't find any fault. But maybe you could show what gracious people you are and, and release the king of the Jews. Just as we celebrate on this day, you Jewish people being released from Egypt, let's release a prisoner. You know, maybe it's that kind of logic. But they don't go for it. This trick doesn't work. They shouted back, verse 40, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Oh, the irony that they won't release Jesus even though he's being charged with an insurrection, but Jesus is not an insurrectionist. But they are releasing Barabbas, who is a terrorist. He is a rebel. You know, and so we oh, don't let him go. Let the insurrectionists go because we want this guy to stand on trial for insurrection. It's crazy. It's all politics and games and it's really ugly. So Pilate has another trick up his sleeve and that brings us to scene four. Chapter 19, verse one. All right, that trick didn't work. He wants to let Jesus go. He's not gonna man up and do it himself so he's gonna find some other slimy way to do it. This is even slimier. Chapter 19, verse one. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. We know from history that Roman law provided for three types of flogging. There was the, you might call level one flogging, where it was kind of a beating with fists and rods and to really rough someone up. Not kill them, but just teach them a lesson really bad. And then there was a second level of flogging, which was more severe for convicted criminals that was a bit rougher and a little more painful. And then there was the third level of flogging, which is sometimes called a scourging which is what they did before they crucified somebody. It was a way to kind of kickstart the death process by, by whipping them so much. Eyewitnesses from history uh, say that during a scourging, someone's bones would often be exposed and their internal organs because their body was, their skin was being ripped off from the whipping. It was, it was such a violent punishment that some people died from the scourging and never made it to the crucifixion. It appears that Jesus received the level one beating here. This is not the scourging before the crucifixion because he hasn't been convicted yet. This is kind of like teach him a lesson. Satisfy the bloodlust of the religious authorities a little bit. So what do they do? Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. The mocking, painful crown. If these are the thorns from the, the date palm, they could be 12 inches long. 
They clothed him in a purple robe, a mock king's color. And they went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. It's like, Hail, Caesar. He said, Hail, King of the Jews. Boom. Boom. And they're hitting him in the face. And so once more, scene five, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Second time now, he does not deserve death. But look, I beat him up a little for you. Happy? Enough? This should be enough, right? And so, verse 5, they brought Jesus out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate says to them, Behold the man. Here is the man. The famous Latin phrase, Ecce homo. Here's the man. This is the one you're looking for. Behold the man. And as the reader, we're, we're just caught in this moment, and, and we have to ask ourselves, what do we see when we see Jesus? Behold the man. He, he sort of presented to us as the readers. What do we see? We know what Pilate saw. Pilate saw a joke. <laughs> For Pilate, it was like, here's the man. Here's the king of the Jews insulting Jesus, insulting the Jewish people. You know, this is, here's the big scary guy who's going to take over Rome. Ooh, there he is. That's the one you're all worried about. And so for Pilate, it was just a, a joke. For the, the high priests and the ruling elite of the people, it was not a joke. He was a threat. And so they cry out when they see him. As soon as they see him, they just begin shouting, crucify Crucify, verse 6. Crucify. Right? So for them, it's a threat. He's a a threatening picture. He's threatening their authority. They didn't have political authority because they were a subjugated people, but they still had spiritual authority. And Jesus had been sapping that away. The, The people were turning to Christ rather than following the high priesthood in the temple. He was undermining their spiritual authority. So for them, this was a threat. For them, Jesus was a blasphemer. You know, you go on in verse 6. Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. Again, mockery. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Third time. And the Jews insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. They're really concerned about his blasphemy. So it's not just a political issue. It's a religious theological issue there struggling with. And so Pilate sees a joke. The religious leaders see a threat that must be put down. What do you see when you see Jesus with the crown of thorns and the bruised face and the robe and the blood? What do you see? Do you see a martyr? Do you see a, an idealist who has run up against the wall of realism? Do you see uh, an inspirational person who stood for their beliefs? What do you see? Do you see a, a tragic figure, uh, a political victim, like so many people who have been ground down by the wheels of politics and state. What do you see when you see Jesus? Do you see? Do you have eyes to see? The glory of God. K. 
can you see in that moment the glory of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God in that moment? Because here really is not just the king of the Jews, the king of the Gentiles, the king of the whole universe. And he's standing there and he's come to die for our sins. I mean, the reason Jesus came was so that we could be forgiven. The reason you and I can't enter the kingdom of God, the thing that's blocking us, is our disobedience. The problem is you and I are all Barabbases. We're all rebels against heaven. We do it our way on our terms. And rather than than condemning us right off the bat, God sent his own son to die for us. You know, Pilate says, behold the man. And it reminds me of John the Baptist's words back in John chapter 1 when John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What do you see when you see Jesus? Do you just see the man or do you see the Lamb of God? And, and when you see the Lamb of God, when you see that Jesus is not just kind of a, a pathetic figure, but that he is, has come intentionally to die so that, so that those soldiers' fists that punched him, those soldiers' fists that deserve to be nailed to a cross, Jesus is being nailed in their place. When you see that, when you see God's glory, then Jesus standing there, he just shines. He shines. And your heart is drawn to him. You want to see him. I, was, uh, I had lunch with my wife, uh, I think on Thursday when I was writing this, and, and we went out for a quick lunch and talking. And she's like, well, tell me how the sermon's going. And I started talking about this, this moment when Jesus is presented, and behold the man, and what do you see? And, and my wife just started crying, and I started crying. It was just, you know, it's like the, just the, the weight of that moment hit us both, and so here we are in the, the restaurant crying together. I'm like, people are going to think we're having a bad couple moment here. It's like really awkward, right in the middle of the restaurant, but it, it was just the, the thought of Christ standing there, held up to the world, a humbled suffering figure, and yet in that moment, the glory of God is burning like the sun. It's burning like the sun because God's mercy is there if you have eyes to see it, if you have ears to listen to the truth, if you don't just go, whatever, like Pilate, but if you can see the man and see the Son of God who came to die for us. Well, let's look to the last two scenes real quickly here. The, uh, the Jewish leaders made a mistake in verse 7 when they, says, when they said, he claimed to be the Son of God. That little phrase, Son of God, it kind of hooked Pilate, sort of caught him off guard. They probably shouldn't have said that, but for whatever reason, it freaked Pilate out a little bit. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, so he went back inside the palace. So it could have been all done right there, but now Pilate's a little bit nervous. He's a little freaked out. He says, whoa, whoa, son of God? Whoa, 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 what's that? So scene six, he goes back in to talk to Jesus about this. And who knows what's going on in Pilate's head? We don't know what's going on in Pilate's head. You know, was Pilate superstitious? I mean, he was Greco-Roman. They did believe in gods and spirits and all kinds of demigods and incarnations of the gods on earth sneaking among us. You know, maybe he was having kind of a, a superstitious moment. Maybe it was like in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, I am, and the, the soldiers went, you know, maybe, maybe he's just been affected somehow by the glory of God in that moment. Who knows? But for whatever reason, Pilate's now freaking out a little bit. 
So he goes in to talk to Jesus, and he says in verse 9, where did you come from? Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. So first time, he's asking Jesus, what'd you do? Tell Pilate, what'd you do? And now he's saying, where are you from? Who are you? Something's shifted. Pilate is now nervous. He's afraid as to what's happening. And Jesus won't even answer him, which is even more ominous. So that gets his Irish up a little bit. Verse 10. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? How dare you not talk to me? And Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. You think you can do what you want, but the only reason you can do anything to me is because God's letting you. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin, probably speaking about Caiaphas. And so, here's even grace in that moment. Hey, Pilate, listen. Listen, Pilate. This is happening. God is in charge. You have no authority. And suddenly, the roles are reversed, ironically. Now, Pilate is the one who's being told who's in charge. And now, Jesus is the one who's calmly telling him that, Power comes from above, which, by the way, is where Jesus said he came from, from not of this world. And so no wonder, verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. So now he's like, I got to get rid of this guy. We can't let him go. There's a fear. There's a sense of some level. I'm not going to say Pilate so far as to say that Pilate became a disciple of Jesus. I don't think so. But I think that he just had some fear of, of the numinous power of the whatever that was represented in Jesus, and now he's afraid of Jesus. The problem is, there's another power at play, pushing against the other side, and it's there in verse 12. The Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So the Jews are still playing the board game, and they play their card. You know, whenever you play a a, a board game or board games, you gotta have something up your sleeve. You gotta have something up your sleeve. You got to have your trump card, your secret play, your card you hold back, your move you're going to make. You've got to have some plan that you're working on. And so now they pull out their trump card. If you let him go, you're not a friend of Caesar. And so what they were really doing is threatening him. They're saying, look, if you let him go and and he's a king, then you're opposing Caesar and we will tell on you. Because they had done it before. We know from history the Jews had sent, the Sanhedrin had sent delegations to Rome to tell about what Pilate was doing. So they're really threatening to go to Caesar, to go over Pilate's head, go to Caesar and accuse him directly of supporting a rival king. And now Pilate is suddenly caught on the horns of a dilemma. What will he do? Will he, will he honor Jesus Christ and what he's starting to get about Christ, whatever that is, or will he go with Caesar, Christ or Caesar? Will he stand for the truth and for what's right, or will he do what's politically expedient to protect his own skin, perhaps literally? Will he um, believe in the kingdom of heaven, or will he live for the kingdoms of this world? Which one is it going to be? And all of a sudden, Pilate, who started out as this kind of arrogant, gruff bully, has now gone through a character arc where he finds himself, in a sense, on trial. 
And now he's the one who's caught between these two kings and these two kingdoms. One, a spiritual kingdom that promises something that he's not sure of. Another, the one he knows all too well, the, the political machinery of Rome. And so Pilate, he has to make his choice. The enemies of Jesus have already made their choice. Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. He's trying that one again. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Oh, the irony. That they want to kill Jesus for blasphemy. But they've just disavowed God and claimed Caesar as their king. So now what will Pilate do? Tragically, verse 16, Pilate stands with the enemies of God and the enemies of Christ. He makes his choice in verse 16. He hands Jesus over to them to be crucified. Where do you stand with Christ? We must choose where we stand. If we do not choose, we have chosen. You can't not choose. Do we stand with Jesus or do we stand with the world? Do we stand with the world and do everything we can to protect our little share of the world, to make sure that our lives are the way we want them, to make sure that that our children are the way we want our children to turn out and get all the benefits? And, and, and do, we, do we fight to make sure we have the career we want and the home we want and to make people like us the way we want and to have our, our little fiefdom in this world, our little share of the kingdom, our little bit of the board game play out the way we want? Or do we want Christ and his kingdom? Are we willing to sacrifice this world for Christ? Are we willing to die to this world to have Christ. You have to count the cost. This is not just easy believism. Add Jesus to your life and it's all better. You have to choose. Do we really believe? Do I really believe that if I love my life, I'll lose it, but if I lose my life for Christ's sake, I will find it? Am I willing to take up my cross and to stand with the Savior who offers me eternal life, but maybe not everything this world has to offer? Am I willing to sacrifice the American dream for the heavenly promise? Where is my kingdom? Where is my God? We must choose. And unfortunately, this choice does not come when it's convenient to us. God rarely sends us an email asking if he can get into our schedule and find a time to present a choice to us. It doesn't work like that. It comes at the most unexpected moments. I bet Pilate didn't know he was going to be in this position. So here is the choice. The choice that stands in front of all of us to stand with the world or to stand with Christ. And even as Christians, we know that sometimes we, we go back and forth. Even those of us as Christians who've chosen to stand with Christ will sometimes find ourselves going back to the world. and Like, like Peter, you know, sort of copping out and going back to the world. But the good news is, if there's any consolation from this story, it's this, that Jesus Christ went to be crucified. And so at the end of the day, we praise God 
that Christ was crucified for our sins and that it's in Him and not even in our ability to stand with Him, but in Him alone and His death for us that we're forgiven and saved. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you because you stood the test, you stood your ground, you were faithful to the end. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the worthy king. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness for all the ways that we choose the world over you, Lord. Forgive us for that and help us to be a faithful people. Lord, I pray, give us the strength today to stand with you, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices as you, to offer our lives as sacrifices. God, I pray if there's any way in which each of us is wrestling with the the pull of the world, the fear of fitting in and going along and getting along and getting what we want, Lord. I I pray that we would be willing to lay those things down by your grace and to stand with Jesus Christ and to realize that to stand with the crucified Savior is, is everything and to miss him means to miss everything. So, Lord, be with us, we pray. And I pray that as we go out into the world, we might walk with Christ, we might take up our cross, that we might tell others about Jesus, that we'd continue to share this message so that many on the south shore might hear and might enter the kingdom of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.